Hi everyone, my name's Steve Tudor and welcome to the Friday Show. It's a show that's run out of vodka, rum, wine and lager, all in the space of a few days. Please send for help. I'm joined today by Leon and Howard and we're going to be traversing space and time, first looking to the future, then concentrating on the present before having a lovely little wallow in the past. That's an awful lot to be going on with, so let's get straight to it. Hello Leon, how are you today mate? I'm good, thanks, Steve. And what an introduction that is, by the way. In what um, way? No, it's just, it was very concise. Thank you. And uh, and it was a great way to start the pod. So I'm good, thank you. I'm, um, it's Groundhog Day here in London. As my mother said to me yesterday, the epicentre of the coronavirus, apparently, <laughs> which is why I'm still banned from home, even though I've had a test and I've tested negative. Oh, have you really? How did you banned. get one? I had to pay for it, mate. Um, Leon, how did you, before you looked at it, were there nerves? Not really. I mean, to be honest with you, I just, I was around a few people before it all kicked off sort of six, seven weeks ago Mm. who all tested positive. So I thought maybe I was, um, maybe I had it and didn't know. So I thought that, that could open up a few options if, you know, seeing family, and the yeah. kid I looked after, and my girlfriend's kids and stuff. But it turns out I was negative. And according to uh, Dr. Anne Butler, my mother, that I'm still risky because I go running and go to Tesco. So so that's that. So the test was a waste of 150 quid. But That's how I feel about it. Obviously, you know, I'm pro-test and, and they're kind of necessary and beneficial. But you do think, well, you could have a test on a Tuesday and then bump into someone on the Wednesday and it's all counted for nothing. You've been speaking to my mum, mate. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> no, yeah, so I'm fine. I'm fine, to be honest with you. I think I think we're still a day about, you know, how you deal with it all. I mean, listen, there's people who are cracking on as normal, working on building sites, and mm. there's the amazing NHS staff who haven't to fight it all. But I think for the rest of us, um, you've just got to get your head around. It's just day by day. You can't Absolutely. think of the macro the macro stuff unfortunately as selfish as that sounds you've just got to think about you and yours day to day and then you know have to worry about the rest at the end because if you think too far in the future it's a complete head fuck absolutely mate well from someone who's tested negative to someone who's tested positive for love it's Howard how are you today mate good god (laughs) (laughs) this is the I can't take this much this much emotion I'll tell you what, honestly, just to kind of divulge that about 10 minutes ago, I had a phone call with my dad, speaking to him once a day. Normally, he's a grumpy sod. He was kind of like, you know, oh, your sister's just phoned, as if we're all kind of bothering him as he's sitting there kind of on his own. And and he just laid out the most sentimental kind of, you know, like it was far too much for the middle of the day about kind of what I mean to him, what, you know, the amount that I'm doing for him and how much he appreciates it. And, oh, God, he went back over previous marriages he's had it was like uh-huh. I can't cope with this at midday so uh, yeah. yeah I think that's put me in a bit of a sentimental mood uh, my dad's doing a painting for me and my sister so wow what the painting of you two no it'll just oh. be a scenic thing I think he's he's done a well he used to paint a bit as did I uh, stopped it and now he's taking it up because he can't go out now so yeah uh, but I've seen him replicate a Lowry and it looks identical to me so uh, I don't oh, know. Brilliant. I hope it's not one of me. <laughs> <laughs> that would be ace. I'll have to just put it up when they come round and then take it down again. <laughs> if it's if it was done in like a cubist fashion or kind of surrealist, yeah, that would be, right. be, yeah, be brilliant. <laughs> no, I, th- I think he'll be. I would guess it's a Lowry replica or a scene or countryside or something like that. So. But hmm. I do have all those alcohols that you mentioned as well. So. Oh, do you? Right. Well, well, I have a bottle of rum because I've been trying to perfect jerk chicken <laughs> marinade. So. Yeah. <laughs> I only bought it for that. And I've had 36 beers have turned up. So, Well, just to show the difference in class between me and you, mate, um, my wife's just had jerk, jerk chicken, but she's had pot noodle jerk chicken. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> We're Wales. We do things differently here. <laughs> right. Let's move on to the footballing matters. And we start with a bit of a serious one and then we can get to the fun stuff. Um, some thoughts really on Peter Ridsdale's comments this week um, where he basically said that now would be a good time to reassess kind of priorities in football 
um, and maybe kind of, you know, pass it forward and start looking after clubs in the lower leagues. Um, one of his quotes, I do think we're at the moment, at the moment it's a real opportunity to try and correct some of the problems with finance within football. You could say that he's the last person who should be talking about this, or you could view it as he is actually talking from experience. Uh, he wants to see some of the cash in the Premier League flowing down the leagues, in his words. Leon, can you conceivably see this happening? Well, I mean, if I'm honest with you, Steve, I haven't got a clue what's going on with the Premier League and their attitude to all this virus, to be honest. I mean, we can go into that later, but on the subject of Peter Isday, I think... You were right when you said, I mean, he's one of the main culprits of kind of overspending behaviour in the past. So maybe he's a person who's learned and realises. But it's a bit like, was it when Berry went bankrupt? Yeah. Uh, you know, saying, you know, you've got a few million, why can't you? I'm not sure. I mean, when we were struggling in the days, Peter Swales and, and then Franny Lee, no one would give two shits about helping us. So, I mean, I don't know. I mean, it's it's that whole attitude, isn't it? And the same attitude with the coronavirus. Like I said, just said, you could be selfish and think micro or think of the bigger picture and all those struggling and think macro. And I think there's no doubt that the lower leagues will need help. And there's this like plethora of money in the premiership. And why not? Why not uh, waterfall it and help everybody? But... You can look at it in two ways. I haven't given a very um, precise answer. But if I'm really honest, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. And I'll talk later about, as a, as a youngster, my dad used to take me to watch Luton Town. And they're a club that have been through everything and they've been bust and they've been deducted points. And, and you know, maybe it will be a fairer world and we'd all love to see a fairer world. But in your, in your last sort of point, will it happen? No. <laughs> yeah, I, I do err towards the kind of pessimistic on that one. How do you, much the same, can you see this opening up yeah. as a more democratic, better run sport once it all passes? Or might it even go the other way where clubs now are so kind of, you know, desperate to survive that they'll just continue to look after number one moving forward? Yeah, I've got, I've got to be cynical on this one. I mean, mm. how would it happen? I mean, you know... Chairman will keep making statements like this, asking for help, but it doesn't mean the Premier League. There's so many stakeholders here. It doesn't mean the Premier League have to do anything. Will the FA say something? Not that they can make anything happen, I don't think. Will the clubs themselves act? Not really. I mean, look at the desperation to play football now to protect their own money. Uh, but the, the huge don't know that Leon says is, you know, we can't answer this question because let's not assume that that all the Premier League clubs will take this hit with ease and still be rich afterwards because I'm not sure they will. Mm. So I more likely will look to protect their own situation as much as possible. They will not be bothered in the slightly about Accrington Stanley or Doncaster Rovers going bust. It's just they would have to be forced to, I think. Now, money does trickle down now. I don't have the details. And obviously, if you're relegated, those parachute payments are pretty unfair to the existing championship clubs. But you understand why it's protect those clubs because they invest when they're in the Premier League, of course. And then if they go down, you know, they could have disastrous effects if they're yeah. suddenly not getting that Premier League. So I understand why they exist, but they are unfair for comp they're anti competition in a way because it just perpetuates yo yo clubs who are immediately wants to go down at an ad advantage over everyone else. So, you know, that could be looked at. Money could trickle down more because Premier League clubs can afford to even after this but the Premier League clubs will say we make much more money <coughs> sorry <coughs> we make much more money because we're we're worth it basically yeah uh, we we generate the money we're you know it's the most popular single league in the world and that money is ours that we generate we people want to watch Premier League football not League One football it's our money and sadly Premier League have hardly covered themselves in glory so far in dealing with the current situation. I can't see them handing out much sympathy to lower league teams after this. But teams are going to go bust. So this question is going to be asked time and time again. So who knows, maybe something, maybe some fund will, will be put together. Uh, but I wouldn't say I was optimistic about it at this point. 
Well, you mentioned there about the kind of rush to return to football and how that's indicative of their greed and, and perhaps even selfishness that could be viewed from a certain angle, um, which kind of brings us on to, I mean, we've, we've discussed about football's, you know, premature return on Wednesday. But consequent to that, Sergio Aguero has come out this week and said that players are scared of a premature return to action. And it hardly reflects well on the Premier League that on that same day, their protocols were published regarding the resumption of training. Um, just a whole miasma of, of things such as kind of, you know, wearing snoods and all manner of things and you're not spitting. And, and you do think, well, how the hell are we going to play competitive football a month after having such stringent, or, you know, the necessity of having such stringent measures in place? Uh, what is football going to look like in a month's time if we do return? Um Leon, can you see it returning um, in June or July behind closed doors as they want? Um, is that remotely a conceivable possibility? I mean, with the Premiership and the way it's run, anything is is possible. But I, I, I truly, truly believe that it shouldn't even be considered or thought about and that the season, whether Liverpool win it and like in, like in France and it's poor and it's stopped and Paris won the league, then fine, but, but it needs to be just stopped and all this bollocks that's been written about can then also stop. Because I, you know, I, I mute a lot of the politics on, on my Twitter feed. I've only got a small following and I tweet for the podcast and my own podcast, but um, I've had to sort of mute the politics. I've also about to mute the football because the stuff I read, like you just said about staying in hotels and snoods and distancing I mean it's the biggest crock of shit I've ever heard and I can't believe it's still even discussed and you know I joked on Twitter I think about if we'd have, if it had been two seasons ago and we were 25 points clear would they have would they have um, stopped it and maybe I'm being a bit blue-eyed there but but the truth is they just got to make an announcement it's done and whether it's voided or whether Liverpool have won then so be it. I don't care. But let's just, then we can look forward to all the press about who we're going to sign, what's going to happen next season, which is far more positive than this toxic bullshit about when and how. And then it's done. And then we can, it'll change the sort of attitude a bit and it'll be more positive. How much of it is is because of um, Liverpool and and the fact that it is Liverpool? I mean, I I see that mentioned a lot. I agree with much of what's been said. is how much of a factor is that? I mean, of course, primarily it comes down to money, surely, and TV rights and, and the losing of, of, you know, billions of pounds. And, um, that's the main thing, let's be honest. But beyond that, um, is, is Liverpool a factor in this, do you think? I, I mean, I, my, my head says no. My head says that that's just, that's the kind of our attitude as City fans. But, but my heart would kind of say that it definitely is a factor. Mm. Uh, but I suppose if you ask me to really put everything, all my football beliefs behind and all the crap we've listened to this season and all the bias in the media and VAR and everything else, I'd say that it's a bigger decision than that. And it's purely greed and financial. And whether it was Liverpool or us or Chelsea who are at the top, I think it would still be the same. It comes down to this greed. And I can't believe that it's even why they've let it go on so long. And particularly with the Dutch league and now the French league, just, just make an announcement and do it. And, and then we move on. Well, they're making an announcement today, but I very much suspect it might be a case of what their hopes are rather than, you know, kind of what will happen. I, I can't really imagine I, anything concrete being announced. Yeah. Like I can't that. see it being black and white. Because what, 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 what would Sky News, Sky Sports News talk about? Mm. And then what would all the newspapers talk about? But okay, it needs to happen. I think in, in this day and age, I think stress is very hard to deal with. I know football is not a major stress, but I think clean cut, solid decisions on something you can control. Obviously, this pandemic, we, we can't control or we can do our best. But with football, make a decision, stick to it, and we'll move on. Howard, this, sorry, this is not just on the Premier League either. I mean, if yeah. we had a strong government or prime minister, like other countries have said, they've mm. not made a decision on how the league table ends. Of course, yeah, the French to a prime minister, but it's yeah. uh, you could 
Boris Johnson had a backbone. He'd rather than try to encourage football to divert from, you know, whatever he wants to divert from. I don't have to spell it out. He could say no sport will be played in this country until at least August or something like that, or September. Yeah. Like yeah. other countries have. Then it would be down to football authorities to decide how to deal with that information. Rather than this drivel about playing in June behind closed doors. I mean, I don't think that's, thing, without getting political, I don't think that's down to Boris Johnson. I mean, I think he's got other things to deal with. Whether you think he's good or not, I think it's down to the football to say, it's done. I don't think the Prime Minister needs to say, don't go to Cheltenham this weekend, lads. Don't play that Liverpool against like in Madrid. I mean, I, do, I do completely disagree. I think he does. <laughs> I don't think I mean, he does. I think that's what he's leading the country I for. No, but he can't tell me what to do. I would not have gone to Cheltenham if I was invited. I've been a few times. If someone told me, I don't need Boris Johnson to tell me, don't go to Cheltenham. I've got my own yeah. brain. No, I'm not going to Cheltenham. Well, this and no, I'm not going to a football match. And no, I'm not going to a pub tomorrow if you opened it. I think, yeah. I think, we, I think, I think, I think we've got to be responsible for our own, our own decisions. It's not down to the government to decide everything we do. This very much reminds me of a, a Facebook kind of... Um, argument I saw this morning where people were talking about our local Aldi and how at first they had the kind of someone on the door and they had all the kind of hand gel and they've kind of just dispensed with that now so um you know someone went in there before and there was like 20 people in the first aisle and then other people were saying yep I found the same what's going on with Aldi and all the flack was being aimed at Aldi until someone said well hang on a minute it's surely we're all now fully aware of what we're supposed to do and, you know, kind of, should we go shopping to keep our distance from people and, and all the rest of it and be careful? So I guess the answer falls kind of between those two stools. I yeah. mean, we, we must be governed to a certain extent. In, exactly. In, You've just showed that people aren't doing, we're not all yeah, sensible yeah. and people won't do, which is why we need, it's why we need leaders a lot of the time. That's a minor point, minor point anyway. I mean, for, yeah, football authorities could do it themselves. Uh, I mean, you know, I saw, Miggles last week saying apparently players are up for playing and I thought what a load of drivel that is you know that's been met non- I mean that could mean anything it's like your loaded market research questions you ask a footballer do you want to play football again soon they'll say yes of course I do <laughs> yeah yeah footballers yeah. want to play football if they say do you want to do it in an isolation camp where you fit where you can't go near any other player you'll be isolated you won't see your family for two months blah 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 you, you have to put your kit on at home and all the other things and they say no, I don't want to do that. So just saying play, footballers want to play football is absolutely meaningless comment. Yeah, it's the same. Thing. We we want to go to the pub, but if I open yeah. tomorrow, I wouldn't go. Yeah. No. Well, I mean, if you picture, say, you know, a corner, I mean, how are people supposed to keep social distancing at corners? And these players are human beings, for goodness sake. They've got, you know, they might have a pregnant partner back at home. They might have, well, of course, they'll have kind of parents. So they might have someone who's kind of sick or vulnerable, who's kind of within their kind of family circle. Um, I don't want to be doing this. I mean, with that in mind, Howard, how badly will the Premier League's reputation suffer should they force through, you know, a quick return for football and God forbid something kind of goes awry? Well, of course, it would be absolutely, yeah. Destroyed as it should be. Mm. Uh, I mean, you can't play. You either play football normally, you don't play it at all. If they're saying it's safe, if everyone's been tested and they can play, you know, and everyone's negative, you don't need rules at corners because you're basically saying everyone's negative, it's safe to play. Normal rules should apply. If they're making special rules for contact within the game, like no spitting, then they're accepting, they're basically admitting that someone might have the virus. Because otherwise, yeah, I mean, you either play the football normally or you don't play it at all. So, yeah, they're taking a huge gamble. The only caveat I would say is this it's six weeks ago, I think, that football stopped or whatever. It feels like a lifetime to some of us. We're talking about six weeks in the future for when it starts. We don't know. Six weeks is a very, 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 very long time at the moment yeah. when huge things can happen in one day. I'm hugely sceptical. I can't see it happening and I think it's dangerous, but planning is okay. I'm just fed up of all the different scenarios. I don't know if it's just newspapers making headlines up themselves to get, you know, views or whatnot, but secret venues are being told. I mean, it's all drivel, but who knows where we'll be in six weeks' time. You know, it could be a different world then. We don't know, so. I mean, it's awful, but there's things like you just said that that you could all get tested. But, you know, when I was told about, uh, from my test, is that if I've had it, I probably couldn't transmit it 
for, for a while, okay? Right. Yeah. But if I touch a, a metal uh, stair balustrade and someone who has it has put their hands on that metal balustrade, then I can still transmit it through my hand by going yeah. into somebody's house and putting it on there. So yeah. all that is complete nonsense. And basically, there is no other way that you just cancel it now and you move on and and you start the season possibly earlier obviously there's the world cup um not the world cup um no that's a while off in the qatar it is um, qatar you got the euros which but yeah the tournament down. the euros sorry my my stupidity there but that's been pushed back and 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 then the planning for that can happen and we can all look forward to something just say it's going to start on september the 1st and that's that but obviously as howard sort of just read we, we don't know the dates. We know that we've had, we're on the downward slope now on the plateau and things will get better. But, but the scenarios, are, as, as we're saying them, are ridiculous. Yeah. Spitting yeah. corners. I mean, it's just a complete nonsense. So, so hopefully they'll, they'll do a clear cut decision today, but I'm, I'm sure they won't. But it's the speculation that's the, the killer, I think. These kind of protocols they're putting in place would feel ridiculous if you're talking about something that is a necessity. And yet, it's football. It's yeah. not a necessity. It's a sport. I mean, we adore it. It is all-consuming at times. But it is a sport. And it, my God, if there's one thing in the past kind of six or seven weeks, particularly with myself, with kind of what I do for a living, it's brought home to me is it's just a sport. That's all it is. It's a pastime. It's a pursuit. It's a hobby. It's an interest. And that's been really brought home. You're right. So I've just got to say, just to show how things are changing again, I'm on the Heathrow uh, flight path here, mm-hmm. and I've not really heard a plane for weeks. Suddenly, we've sat here, and the four have gone past. So I'm just going to close my door. Yeah, yeah, you go. Excuse me, just because I'm. That's to show that things are. Well, I've noticed it too. Yeah, I've noticed it with traffic as well. Traffic outside my house has really picked up yeah. in the past week and, and that concerns me. And we do, I, I don't like all this talk of kind of how, you know, loosening the lockdown and how the plateau is, we've got to be the worst and all the rest of it. It, it. it just encourages people to think, oh, okay, I can start going out again. Um, well, we can't really. Now is just as important, I think, for the next couple of weeks to kind of stay in and stay yeah. safe. Indeed, but say six weeks away. I'll be a, I mean, how it how it plays out, I've no idea. But there will be certain players who just will be. You know, if you think it's not just Sergio Aguero and Glenn Murray, it's uh, yeah. A lot of players will simply not either not want to or simply refuse to go into training or play in isolation. So who knows how it plays out? Uh, Liam, are you back? I'm back. Yeah, sorry about that. Oh, that's no, fine, mate. So. We've looked at quite a bleak future. Um, we've looked at quite a surreal present. Um, uh, let's just enjoy ourselves now and let's just look back um, and look back to a time when football really was more than a sport because we were, you know, a child and it just opened up our eyes to the world and, and the best things that what this world can offer us. Um, particularly, you know, our first game that we saw live. Um, I asked this on Twitter a couple of days ago got flooded with responses from people um, and we'll, we'll go through some of those shortly um, so Leon how old were you when you went to your first live game and who was playing well I, I might lose some followers here today but I have admitted before on the pod that uh, as a child I was taken to Luton Town I'm not wrong by, Luton. My, by my father so my kit. first game was in 79 mm. um, I was five and um uh, we went down to Kenilworth Road. Um, what kind of starting to Jack? What what division were they in at the time? They were in uh, the second division in seventy nine, right. and they went up in eighty. Uh, I would like to say it's because of, I used to go. I went down there for my first game, but and then they had kind of some glory years in the eighties. But then again, a bit like football now, to be honest with you, greedy owners messed it all up. They put in the um, hospitality boxes along one stand, mm, yeah. which mm. killed the atmosphere. Then they put in the plastic pitch, and uh, and Luton was kind of ridiculed. But in those kind of glory early eighties, they'd get twenty four thousand there. And um, I remember Manchester United coming one year, and I've never seen anything in my life. 
I was uh, I was quite scared actually because it was pretty intimidating. I was like seven or eight, mm. and I actually was a, in a junior hatter section away from my dad, and basically I got scared, and I was sort of carried over the kind of um, carried through the stand and onto the pitch. And it was on the actual intro of Match of the Day, me walking around the pitch of one, one game. <laughs> that was on my little Luton claim to fame. But then it was in 83 when my link to City kind of, because Luton was still a, a, a small club, really. And I, you know, I think as a, as a, as a young fan, um, it's very well supporting your local club, but you have this sort of, you see the bigger stadiums and the bigger players and you're like, oh, why, why wasn't my dad a, I wasn't going to say a City fan, but obviously City weren't doing amazingly in the early 80s. But you wanted a bigger club. And then when when uh, Raddy Antic, who died the other week, didn't he? Yeah. When he yeah. scored against City and Pleat was doing his jig on the pitch, I remember listening to that. And I was pleased, obviously, for Luton at the time. But I kind of, God, look at that stadium. <laughs> look at the size of that ground. I, I like City's kit. And I sort of took a, an interest in City then, but it took another 10 years to go to my first City game in my first year at uni, and we'll, we'll come back to that. But um, So yeah, it was 79, the Luton game, and then my first City game was on the 30th of January in 93. Um, so you were in uni in the early 90s, is that correct? I was in the early 90s, yeah, and a friend of mine who was uh, known as in the rugby club as Andy Mank, yeah, which wasn't wasn't a yeah, typical rugby player nickname. It didn't take a lot to work that one out. He took me, and I think I mentioned before one of my best friends from home was a guy called Neil Ryan, who's a coach under under eighteen Man United coach now, and his father was assistant manager in my first year at uni. So I was under a bit of pressure to uh, go to the other side, and I had all the access because he was obviously Fergie's assistant. And I, um, thank God, thank God, <laughs> I didn't buckle to that pressure. I remembered about the Luton connection and I remembered about the kit and John Bond and his son, Kevin, and I just, and I went down to um, Main Road of Andy Mank and um, it was four quid. We paid four quid to get in because, and I mate of mine who died actually, unfortunately, Big Dom, who's six foot five and about 20 stone, he got in as a junior four <laughs> quid on this day we all, ground, got it? we all went to the Kipax stood in the Kipax yeah um, I remember we paid through and uh, Andy goes you got any pies and people started lobbing pies which I was quite pleased about because obviously people throw coins as well but he goes <laughs> start lobbing pies and it, and it was brilliant and I've got all the details I mean I don't want to crack, keep talking too much but I'll, I'll carry on if um, it, it suits so, yeah, within 14 minutes, we were 2-0 down. And what I remember, it was Colin Hendry's uh, first game back as a Blackburn player. Right. So he was kind of uh, given a, an amazing welcome. And then within 14 minutes, Mike Newell scored for Blackburn, who was actually a Luton player for a while. Yeah. Um, and then Terry Phelan, we've got that Terry Phelan, um, <laughs> scored an own goal. So we were 2-0 down in 14 minutes. Um, and I was going to tell you the team actually if anyone's interested is that we had big Tony Coton in goal Ranson Terry Phelan Steve McMahon Ook Hurley Whirly Vonke uh, David Shy, as my mate Andy Mount used to call him although he you know he had a good unlucky Michael Sharon yeah yeah unlucky Shezza <laughs> and then Disco Pants Quinny Fitzroy Simpson and Ricky Holden and then the subs were Inga Britson, Inga Brixen, yeah, Inga Britson, Peter Reid, and Margotson. Um, that was our side. Did you? Is and that I, from I, a programme? Is that from online? You reading that? No, I, I did. I just checked it online, ah. and basically, maybe we couldn't afford a programme. <laughs> we were students, <laughs> but but just to carry on. So obviously, I was the, the Kipax was buzzing, and again, it, it would really kind of. There was a real atmosphere in there and you could see the hardcore above us and we and we were like uh, a bit further down. And then City won 3-2. Mike Sharon scored in the first half and then Curly Worley scored a penalty and then David White, who proved he wasn't shy, um, <laughs> scored the winner. And uh, I was hooked. I was hooked. I used to actually skive playing rugby 
I used to feign hangovers and illness to go and watch City. And if I'm really honest, I took 15 years of abuse because when I left the university, I used to come up and stay in Hale with the Ryan family. And of course, they were going from strength to strength, Champions League trips and, and all this. And I, was, I used to sit in the American bar in Hale arguing all day with Neil's dad played for Man United in the 60s, Jimmy Ryan. And, oh, I, yeah. and, I'd be, and all, the, all their mates were Reds. There was Michelle Lavelle, Michael Lavelle, or whatever you call him, and all those lot. Yeah. I used to get abused, no end. I was the only blue, apart from one of their mates, Chris, had a brother who was a blue. And uh, I loved it. And of course, luckily for them, I don't really go to Hale anymore because for the last uh, eight years anyway, they, uh, they couldn't say too much. But they were great days, and, and they were great days. And I saw some stuff this week about Oasis's gig. It was the anniversary mm. of Main Road. And that kind of summed it all up for me. The day of that gig, Neil had gone to um, Old Trafford, and I think they beat Forrest 5 0. And, we and he goes, I've got tickets. I've got tickets for the gig from, from Gary Neville or whoever. And he had the tickets. So we get down to Main Road, and we're. We're waiting for the game. Stuart Pierce was there, and there was a problem with the tickets, as there always was. But then I went, then I went to come out on the stage, and Main Road was rocking, and I was kind of so proud to be a blue. Hmm. Uh, it was our stadium, um, one of the biggest bands at the time, and and I always remember at that time in '93 when I was going there. And it's not about being cool, but I remember Man United was all, all families. They just started their success, all in their Ambro matching jackets. And when you go down to City, it was like you were, you felt part of something. You part of something. I mean, everyone was in their Stone Island, and all right, nothing clever about being a thug in your teenage years, but it was just so much more fun. And and obviously we weren't great then, and we had some really lean years. But I, I was just so chuffed at Andy Mack. I've lost touch with him actually. But he's basically made the next 30 years of my life in some ways. Hmm. Um, so I, that, that was a huge day for me. And it was uh, an amazing game. And, uh, and I've been in love with City. And actually, I think a year or so later, they bought Paul Walsh, yeah, yeah. who was my yeah. favourite player as a Luton Town fan. Yeah. So I kind of that kind of uh, <laughs> justified my decision that my favourite ever player was now playing for City. But in a typical City way... They sold him for Jerry Creamy, <laughs> and uh, who was yeah. the biggest pile of shit ever. I mean, I did see him score a winner at Leeds away and Newcastle away. This is when I was proper Lee on the Cockney Blue. I was in the fanzine and I was a proper part of the gang. Um, but yeah, so but they always kind of spoilt it at the time. Um, but yeah, sorry for going on, but that's 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 my uh, that's the start of my city. Uh, career and and I feel sorry for young kids I feel you know I keep an eye on Luton now and I think it's pretty awful to change his club um especially in your sort of late teens but I do say to mates whose sons still support Luton and they're from my parents area I say you know it's great that he goes and supports his local team I think he should always do that but you know don't necessarily pick one of the big boys, but it'd be nice to pick him and pick him a team in the Premiership mm. or even the. It is possible I mean, to do the trick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think as long as you stay loyal, and, and there was a bit more history. Last bit of story about that, and was that Jimmy Ryan, who was a friend of the family, and Neil was my best mate. He was sacked by Luton as a manager after keeping them up, and uh, me and my dad cancelled our season ticket and never went again. Because it was so poor. I think they bought, even bought David Pleat back. But Jimmy wouldn't. Jimmy's a typical Scot. He's a really wise old Scot. And I think that's why Fergie respected him. He was part of the director of the Youth Academy and everything. He was really respected. But he basically wouldn't. I think it was Peter Nelkin was the chairman. And he wouldn't let his daughter in the changing room before a game. He was a very kind of um, principled man. Yeah. And once they sacked Jimmy, who kept them up with no money, then... Uh, we, we, we stopped our season ticket and obviously that's when I, a few years later, I went to Manchester and, and, and the rest is history. Well, my history anyway. Well, so what about your history, Howard? I mean, we spoke before the pod and you said that you couldn't remember your first game. Um, yeah. But do you know what kind of season it was? No. You, you don't know what season it was? <laughs> yeah, no, exactly the same age and 
time as uh, as Leon, to be honest. Right. So I I just don't understand if you went to your first match very young. I don't obviously you can be told what your first game was by your your dad or whoever you went with, but I fail to believe how people can remember these things, to be honest. But I just, I just have a terrible memory of childhood. Anyway, there was nothing wrong with my childhood. Right. I just don't, I just don't have that clarity of memory that some people do about every little thing. So, yeah, yeah it, it would be about seventy nine, I would reckon. Uh, now I'm going to lose listeners more than Leon ever will, because uh, my dad's a United fan. So, Same well, he's, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, he's old school in a way that he's not a bigger f- football fan as me. I, I'm sure you won't mind me saying that. Uh, I'm so much, you know, so too obsessive about football. I think he would say he was a more relaxed football fan, and he'd also go on about in the old days about you'd go and watch United one week and City the next. You know, whoever was at home, it was a different world then. So he wasn't very, he wasn't tribal at all. And I lived North Manchester, so I, he took me to Bury quite a lot because that was the nearest one. So we were only about two miles away from Gig Lane. Uh, He'd take me to United and he'd take me to City. And I have no recollection of going to Old Trafford. And I obviously settled on City at a young age. So what, what age was this that you would have gone to Old Trafford? I, well, I don't... I can only assume about 79 is when I first started going to games. So about I, five or six. About five years old, yeah. yeah. But if you're talking about my first concrete memories, you'd have to jump... Memories, you'd have to jump forward to 84-ish. So I remember... So basically, City became my team and my dad... Bless him, would take me to Main Road, <laughs> despite being a United. Fan. And where, where would you go? So you went with uh, your dad. This is what I remember clearer than everything. I remember where we sit precisely. So right. he wanted a comfortable match experience. So we'd yeah. always sit in the we'd sit in the main stand. Uh, so I'd always sit in the main stand, uh, just left of the halfway line. But oh, right, okay, that's where I used to half, sit when I first halfway down for that. You know, uh yeah, between the halfway line and the corner flag, so and about yeah. halfway up the lower tier or lower level, basically. So, yeah, I can remember that, and I can remember just average football because you know you look at. I remember clearly City being relegated in '83, but I don't. I wasn't there. I wasn't at the match that day, so I only remember the experience at home. So, a fitting first proper memory in a way for what was to come, because City would go, you know go back up in 85, down in 87. So essentially the 80s were just a period of all right football. So, you know, I don't remember the first game or the first team, but 84, 85, I do remember 84 to 85 season. I think we beat Grimsby 3-0. Then we lost 3-2 at home to Fulham the next game at home. They were the first two home games. And I kind of have memories of them. Uh, So you had like Alex Wilson, Clive Wilson, Mick McCarthy, David Phillips and Neil McNabb always stands out as my first favourite player. Mm. Uh, just tenacious. Maybe it was the moustache. We discussed, <laughs> discussed moustaches before. Paul Power was there, of course. Maybe on the wane before he found success again at Everton. Uh, so, yeah, there's some good Steve Kinsey were there, James Mellows. Yeah, Jim Mellows. Just Paul Simpson and David Phillips, I remember. the play, you know, Quite a few of these yeah, players. Uh, but not, not the key the games really, they weren't that eventful. There was the Charlton game, of course, the promotion game, but I don't think I was there that day. That's one of the you know, most amazing games and just the photos from that day as well are superb. But I just remember g- generic games at Huddersfield 10-1 in 87. My dad claims that the ball was kicked into the crowd and that he threw it back, which... I've done that. I've, do, I've, I've done that yeah, to this, um, Gordon Strachan. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, this was a day of three hat-trick scorers, so... <laughs> Yeah. Who would all have wanted that ball? So. <laughs> uh, yeah, and, and just little, I think Leicester in the Cup, we won 1 0. There weren't, there weren't exciting games that often because they were a yo yo club then. Uh, but yeah, I I don't remember the game, that first game, which is a shame. I should have asked my dad maybe, and before next week maybe, I'll ask him of his early memories of taking me. So I've got a, a better memory to come back with next time. But I do remember the experience, and we'll, we'll probably talk about that in a bit, about what football was like then. But yeah, mm. I remember the day more than the individual matches. That's exactly the same with me, to be honest. Um, I remember my first game, which was Wrexham against Shrewsbury in 1980. Um, but then when you go past that and you get onto City, and my dad was a red, so he basically would take me to Old Trafford, and my brother would take me to City. Um, and this would be 
say two or three times a season. But then as I got into the age of maybe 11, 12, it was pretty much every week, you know, United City, United City. Um, and at United, it just, it never felt right to me. It was just, you were going to family stand, uh, you got given a, a balloon. Um, it just <laughs> felt all very kind of safe. And and then, you know, I'd go with my brother and we'd go to Kipax and I couldn't see a thing. And yeah. there was all those smells and kind of, sense of danger and excitement and so there's no contest but prior to that the first city games it's all about the experience i can't remember a bloody thing about the games themselves i know that they were around about 84 85 but certainly 85 86 and we were going to main stand um, my brother's six years older than me so i'd be about 10 at this stage he was 16 you know he, he started going on his own to go to the kickbacks and he always hated having to go in the main stand. Um, but, you know, we'd sit there and watch it. But again, it's the experience. It was the drive up. Um, well, actually, at that time, you know, he wouldn't be driving my brother. So he was getting a coach up um, from the North Wales branch and then, you know, having the chips before the game. And, of course, the old fable thing, which we're, we're going to move on to very shortly, they kind of walk up the steps and taking in that green, green, lush grass. Um, yeah. the, the greenest of greens that I've ever seen before or since is the first time you've seen a football pitch in the flesh um, and just a huge expanse. Um, but that was more impressive for me when I went to the Kipax because obviously what your your vista then is of the main stand um, with the kind of a roof and, and all the rest of it. And so I do have a very vivid memory. I got my first season ticket in 87, 88. Um, my granddad bought it me. And so that was every home game, obviously, from then. So I think that was my first game in the Kipax, I think, uh, when we beat Millwall 4-0. And this is how time plays tricks on you as well, because someone got in touch on Twitter and said that their first game was the Lakey game against Leicester when he nearly swallowed his tongue. Mm. And I replied to him saying, God, what a mad game that would be to, to be your first live game. Because, you know, I recall that being one of the, oddest, eeriest, strangest kind of experiences I've ever had in a football ground. And then when I came back to do this and I look back at the seasons, it was like, hang on a minute, that Millwall game was only two home games before then. <laughs> so that would have been my third ever game in the Kipax. And yet it feels in my memory that I'd been, you know, a Kipax veteran for a couple of years before then. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I really, really have a strong, vivid memory of walking up the, the, the steps at the Kipax for the first time and taking it in and the low roof and then as you walk down up to the halfway point of the Kipax and then you can see the roof of the main stand, the huge kind of green vista of, of pitch and just being absolutely blown away. Um, this is going to lose all of our listeners. I mean, the two of you have already lost <laughs> some of our listeners. Well, we're about to say now we'll lose all of them. But the same can also be said of Old Trafford, I have to say. Um, you know, I have no love for the team. Um as I said, I never felt right being there, but my cousin was a United fan, my uncle. So the four of us used to go. It was an adventure, you know, I was 10. And so I do also remember seeing that pitch for the first time and going, yeah. oh my God. Um, I think it was the crowd that first struck me. Yeah. The crowd at, at the city. The mass of humanity, yeah. Yeah. I mean, my, that Grimsby game, would, you know, attendance like 21,000 or something. Because they were kind of your average attendances for a lot of, you know, even that was second tier, but even top tier, you could be getting 21, 25,000. No one's bothered, obviously. But even 21,000 would seem like a massive humanity, of course, especially on the approach to the ground. It was just like yeah, an overwhelming yeah. experience. Yeah. It's scary. I mean, it's you know, scary, exciting, but all the swearing, you know, bear in mind, yeah. at United, it was all very safe and family friendly because that was the enclosure I was in. And the Kipax, <laughs> every, the abuse the players got. And, and it was, you know, and Welsh was, again, so it, it was swearing in a Mancunian accent was probably what made me become a City fan more than anything else. <laughs> that, that kind of, you know, really kind of distinctive Mancunian accent, have, hurling abuse at a player. It's like, I love this. I, I want to come again next week. And, and what also swayed me as well Again, I can't remember who was against, but I remember we lost, we won 4-2, and then the following week we lost 3-2. So it wasn't the amount of goals, it was more the fact that, you know, City could be brilliant one week and utterly shite the next. It's like, ah, this is me, I like this, I, I, prefer, I prefer this kind of roller coaster ride. So, yeah, that was my first experiences. Um, 
Should we move on to what we're saying on Twitter? Um, because we've got some great ones, and if we kind of respond to some of these, um, particularly want to start with this because uh, it, it, it refers to the Kipax. So from Michael Thompson, um, don't really remember that much about the game as it was a nil-nil draw v Stoke. What I do remember is standing on the Kipax for the first time and falling in love with everything about it. Only those that stood on it will know what I mean. So Leon, what does he mean? Well, I mean, even though I was like 18, it was kind of, there was a slight danger to it Mm. because people were throwing coins and they might hit you because they don't always reach the pitch and we were quite low down. (laughs) I think that the the sort of, when we scored a goal, which we scored three that first game, there were like waves of people going down. It was the, the noise. And again, I wasn't used to it. I'd only really seen Luton Town in a few games at Wembley. And it was, um, it was, it was, it, there was windy corner. Uh, yeah. And I don't know, I just think everything about it was like football as you imagined at a big club and as you wanted it. And I think there were 29,000 there that day, which obviously is not a huge thing, but, but it felt, it felt um, packed. Obviously, 2 0 down and three, winning 3 2 helped. But I just think there was something special. Standing at football is special anyway. Yes. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, and I think, that, 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 uh, to be honest with you, I'm not trying to be at make out, oh God, on your tough, but I like the danger of football. Unless I'm taking, a, uh, you know, my nephew or, or my girlfriend's children or whatever, then don't want danger. If you're taking a girlfriend or a wife, you don't want danger, to be honest with you. But as a young lad, you kind of love the danger of it. And I, I, I used to go to every derby. I had a season ticket, but also I went to all the derbies for probably 20, 20 odd years. I wouldn't miss one. And there is an element of you that, that kind of enjoyed the danger. It doesn't mean I was getting into rucks, um, because that's pretty pathetic at a football match. But I think, I think there was an element of danger. And I think that's what's interesting to a young lad going to football. Howard, um, not a really young lad, not if you're nine or 12, but if you're like 18. <laughs> well, even then, though, because when I first started going to away games, I was maybe 12, 13, certainly 13. And if there was any kind of trouble, naively, I used to think I was safe because I thought, well, no one's going to hit me. I'm a kid. Now, of course, that's wrong. You know, it could easily be where you, you get one in the face. But um, so I used to be, there's one down in Tottenham where someone kicked over a bin. They poured out all the Tottenham lot massive kickoff all around me, you know, kind of like almost cartoon kind of violence. Um, and yeah. I was just standing there thinking, oh, this is all right, isn't it? <laughs> it didn't yeah. even occur to me that someone would take a swing at me because I, I felt like I had the superpower of of being like a child. So, you know, I was untouchable. And um, funny enough, then it was around that time when I was coming out the ground at, at City and I had one of those half and half hats and it was City Celtic. I had no allegiance to Celtic or Rangers. I just happened, I think it must have been a Christmas present or something. Um, and this bloke pissed up, kind of got the hat and, well, I like knocked my head at the same time and just kind of got the hat and threw it on the floor. Because um, he was a Rangers fan or something. It was something to do with Protestant Catholic. And, you know, I was too young to know what the hell he was doing. So my brother kind of stood in the way. and But I was really embarrassed because loads of people saw it. So I just wanted to pick my hat up and just scuttle away. Um and that's when probably I realised, oh, hang on, yeah, people can still have a goat here if you're a kid. But prior to that, yeah, the danger was exciting. Um, and then as you get older, it's less so. And, and until you get to an age now where, God, if, if I ever saw something at a game now, just heart would sink. I'd just be bored. Be like, oh, come on. You know? Especially if you're so, hungover. I'm pretty yes. used to hungover. <laughs> so I was, because we used to play rugby against like the Vale of Loom and all these big club sides on a Saturday. And I started going to City more than playing. But they were up for a ruck the whole time. And you're like, yeah. all right, mate, I'm hung over here. Please don't touch me. Don't <laughs> do not do it. So, but of course, three or four pints in down the old house at home in Fallowfield. And then you're ready to, ready to take on the world. <laughs> well, I mean, if that's the kind of a danger aspect, I mean, James Jackson also kind of mentions other kind of evocative things and um, how green the main road grass was. The smells, I remember too. Cooking onions from the burger vans cigarette smoke, beer, um, and then the noise of the crowd. Um, wow, I wasn't expecting that. Um, was that the, It's so evocative, isn't it, those early games as, as a family? Are. 
Yeah, he missed out the farting. The, the, <laughs> yes. the, constant fart, the constant beer farts. But no, yeah, they are. The smells. I mean, you start, the smells that you don't really... You, you see them... Any day you get those smells is at game game days now yeah. because of health and safety and the way the world is. I mean, in London when I was a kid, they used to do the chestnuts and hot dog vans on every corner. Yeah. So yeah, it's that smell and yeah, the beer and the smoking. And yeah, I think... And I, for me as well, I think... Walking to the ground from Fallowfield mm. was huge. There was a there was a burger van that used to twist a chip van. It turns out a good mate of mine, a city fan, owned it, but it used to turn around the second half before they come out. So it'd be one way on the way, and then they'd twist it around on the way <laughs> back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then there were kids like wanted to mind your car for the, for the rich students amongst my mates sometimes drive down because they're lazy fuckers. But then you know kids want to mind your car for a few quid. And yeah, it was that whole journey down there. Um, and then you get close to the ground and the houses get closer together. And then you, you walk, we walked up and that, that, that entrance behind the old Kipax yeah, yeah. was so vast. Do you remember yeah. the car park was vast and then that old brick wall was vast and it, it was just, it was beautiful. It was like, there was, I mean, listen, at the time I was 18, 19 and hungover or, not as self-aware as I am now. So I wouldn't want to say that I took it all in at the time, but looking back that walk and that car park, all the coaches were parked up. Yeah. I mean, obviously now talking about it, I'm thinking about it and uh, it was just, it was probably everything that Luton town wasn't. Um, and, and yeah, I think that the war, I used to love the walk down there. And obviously it was Moss side. It wasn't the, the rough end of Moss side, but as, as, um, twats from university we thought we were you know going into the hood and thought you know aren't we tough well uh, um, i mean i wanted to ask him how about that i mean just before i do just kind of staying with the evocative nature of of you know going to games as a kid uh paddy graham on twitter a newcastle fan uh said his first game was in 1990 four two down to leicester one five four i remember that game i think um thought that would happen every week oh sweet follow you've the songs, the surges, the stink of piss from the Gallagate bogs, the roar of the crowd, the sun setting, so Lee's Park was silhouetted as vivid today as it was then, uh, which I just thought was a, a lovely sentiment. But what I wanted to ask you, Howard, was, so Leon you know, went to university in Manchester, first game at Main Road, I'm guessing would have been soon after Leon, so it's still, you know, exciting, yeah. still new to you, Manchester, and... Yeah, it's like three or five. It was the January of '93, and I came in October '92. Right. So yeah, it was three months in. So with myself, you know, driving up and and um, from North Wales, part of the thrill was parking in Mossside. You know, it's like, oh god, I'm in Mossside, <laughs> and then you're walking through the alleys, and it's all quite, you know, god, walking through all these kind of almost Coronation Street style alleyways, and it was almost, I don't, I don't want to say exotic, but it was very different to what I was used to. Put it that way, um, from suburbia in North Wales. Um, it felt very kind of of its time and, and very distinct and, and different. So with you being born and raised in Manchester, did you lose out on that aspect? Was it basically always for you a case of just going to the game? Does that make sense? You know, Did you lose out on the excitement of it being a bit kind of thrilling and dangerous and different? A bit, maybe, because, yeah, it was the norm. But yeah. still, there was still that thrill because of the... I don't know, there's something different in about out-of-town football stadiums. Yeah. On the edge of town with nothing around them. Uh, you lose that approach to the ground. Uh, it's about the approach to the ground because, especially night games, that's why we always go on about nostalgia-wise, night games. Uh, and you still get it now at the ground, of course. It's the floodlights just appear. Just seeing that uh, bright light, you can't see where it's coming from, but you're getting nearer and nearer and seeing the bright light. Uh, and just weaving your way through the ter- yeah through these terraces down the alleys the or dog shit alleys always yeah, called. Yeah. Uh, avoiding the white dog poo and just yeah when you first see it I don't think you ever lose that thrill it doesn't matter if it's your club it's uh, a new ground or it's someone you know it's a way day it's just going around that corner and seeing whichever angle you come at that stadium at is still a thrill yeah. uh, so no one say I completely uh, lost the thrill uh, or it wasn't wasn't alien to me, but I guess after a while it does become the norm, doesn't it? But then that's the same for anyone. I think that's the same for all of us when you've been to. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you know, I've seen people argue about 
you know, not going or leaving early, and it's like, oh god, what I would, you know, someone who's never been going, what I would give to go to that ground. Well, no, that's not the same. I've been to five thousand city games. It's not going to be the same. Yeah, that's a slight exaggeration. <laughs> it's not going to be the same. I tried to work out before the time. Is it? Is the you know what? I tried time, to work out before how many city games I've been to. Um, yeah, and when when I came to the kind of tally, it, it disappointed me. So, um, how many do you reckon is for you? Oh no idea I know yeah. it's hard to work it is hard to work out it was um, I kind of did it I was a season ticket holder for 10 years um, and now I go kind of I don't know half the time it's it was very hard to kind of work out but then I was kind of hoping it would be in the thousands and it wasn't it's, oh, but but you're making I didn't, them bad I didn't night have a season ticket until 99 so that's that well yeah when, when I first, well I, I was at Leeds University 92 95 and didn't really have the money to do anything except yeah. Drink beer, <laughs> drink beer and eat fried chicken for three years. So uh, I, I discovered credit cards in 1999, and that, that's the yeah. So I used to be buy individual tickets. So mm. I'd spread myself across the ground. I'd be in the Kipak sometimes, sometimes the Platte Lane, sometimes the main stand. You know, bizarrely beating York four 0 to get in the playoffs. I remember being in the main stand, which is weird for me to be in there. But I don't know. I guess you just bought tickets wherever and moved myself around. But obviously. You want, you'd rather be in the kickbacks all the time, as a youngster especially, because there's just no comparison, as Leon said, to standing there and the mass of humanity. It's just a different experience, isn't it? Well, you mentioned um, night games then, how special they were. Um, there's two on Twitter, Les D and Andy Rawcliffe, who both were lucky enough to experience a night game as their first ever game. Um, Les D says, the colours of the team's kits under the floodlights and a thrill of seeing the players in the flesh instead of just a football annual. Um, and I guess it's that as well, of course, just seeing a player in the flesh for the first time and just kind of, you know, particularly if it's yeah. a household name. And Andy Rockler said the underlying memory as a seven-year-old, which is different from others, is it's a night game, the hustle and bustle getting of, of getting to the ground in the dark with hordes of people greeted by the blinding light from the floodlights. Glorious green of the pitch is difficult to describe. Um, yeah, we're well, with you there, Andy. It, it, it really is a green of the pitch. It's it's kind of and that's and what surprised me is um, another common thing, and this was mentioned by numerous people. Um, just to give an example of Marvin Hage said sitting on the wall at the edge of the pitch at the vet field and being told to get off every time the policeman walked around. He was doing a five minute lapse because um, obviously when you're that age, you're down the front, you get put on the wall, and there's a famous one at the Kipax, wasn't there, and kind of, um, there's a white wall, wasn't it, and people sitting on the white wall, and yeah. um, so that was a, a common one. I've I've got to mention this one, I love this one, because you said you struggle to remember Howard at a certain age. This is Carla Mayers, age three, um, drawing, she remembers being age three, drawing around a 50 pence piece to make the body of a lady, using my North stand seat as a table. <laughs> a city scored, <laughs> and the crowd maybe jump and cry. Um, I love that. So I'm just going to quickly read out a couple of other really ones, ones which I, I loved. Um, I love the, the purity of this one. This is great. Um, it was the old hoosh ground in Yeovil. I was about five in 1969, sporting a big red rosette. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> going through a rickety old turnstile with my dad, the big wooden bench seats and old men shouting at a ref. I think it's a very kind of evocative description there. Um, Blu-ray, uh, City Away at Blackpool in 1971. Big Joe Corrigan took my chewing gum off me behind his goal as he came up for the second half. <laughs> I mean, imagine if Edison did that today. The, the kid would be like, um, he said he, he was 10 and Big Joe looked like a giant. Um, I love this one from a Chelsea fan, Mark Notton. Um, having to go through s- separate turnstiles to my dad, having to go through the junior one. I was eight and due to the size of the crowd, I couldn't see him and started crying. Police put out a tannoy announcement, which really embarrassed my dad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, and there's a couple of other, there's one more, uh, John Benfield. Um, oh, yeah, just, just a silly one, but I love this. Um, finding a porn mag behind a pillar in East Upper with Joe Guest on the front. <laughs> That's a he's bonus. not that old then. Joe Guest is... Uh... Yeah. No, he's, yeah. What, what year, he doesn't say the year, but he's a uh, 4-2 uh... loss to Villa uh, with Dion Dublin scoring overhead kick. So, uh, yeah, it might be early 90s, we're not 90s. But that's a bonus in a first game. 
Part of the cult entertainment, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Old school style. Oh, and, and just so sorry, that... there's one I've missed out on because I love this and it reflects well on Nick McCarthy and it shows the difference, you know, this would never happen today. It couldn't. Um, from Aaron D, um, I think from Ireland. I'm, yes, sorry, from Ireland. Uh, my dad had written to Mick McCarthy, who was captain of City at the time, and we got in to meet all the players. Coming over from Ireland, we got into the dressing room early doors. We got given comp t- uh, seats and treated like kings. I was only seven. Imagine that, just right into, you know, the captain of a club, and he says, yeah, yeah, sure, come on over. And, <laughs> um, so, yeah, there were some great ones on Twitter, and, and the ones that really stood out were the evocative ones, the sight, the smells, uh, the fear, um, you know, because it could feel overwhelming at times, but um, and we'll, we'll never have that again, but it'll never be as good again. And personally, I just look back at it, it's complete fondness that time of following City home and away and, and being a kid oh. and going to school and all my mates were United or Liverpool and none of them went to games and, you know, they'd take the piss out of me mercilessly all through high school or through the latter part of primary school. Um, and even then, though, I just think, yeah, but I went to this, I went to the game, dickheads. <laughs> you know, I, I've been, I was up to Middlesbrough this weekend, you know, whilst you watched the highlights of Liverpool winning yet again on Match of a Day. It's, who's got bragging rights, really? Um, so, yeah, that's my... Uh, I think for... Input. Following on from that, I think between 18 and 25, they're like your peak. If you like a drink and uh, you like your football, then I think between 18 and 25 are the the greatest years of your kind of football supporting career. Mm. Obviously, the amazing memories that mould us uh, is before all that. And mine are obviously at Luton as a kid with my dad. But it's the 18 to 25-year-olds. I mean, I couldn't have timed it better. Um, It's just a shame we weren't very good. But it didn't. It didn't really matter. And actually, the worse we got, the more you wanted to go and support them. And um, Leon, can I just interject? You know, sorry, man. Just something that occurred to me because I I did go to United sometimes with my dad, but like I say, it was always with an uncle as well. So you two went with your fathers to, to games. How important an aspect when when looking back and the fondness of that kind of nostalgia. How important an aspect is it that you went with your dad? <laughs> well, my dad won't listen to this podcast, so he hate me for saying it but no it was amazing I remember the drive in the car mm. he had a building business yeah. and Pete Feasy his foreman used to come with us we drove to Luton we parked at this place called Trimoco which is a car dealership who sponsored Luton and then we'd go down there and my dad was a bit on the piss back then <laughs> so basically he'd go on the piss and I'd be there waiting for autographs after the game <laughs> but, but but I remember the smells of the car Pete Feasy's cigarettes and I remember every I mean my I'm a bit opposite to Howard is that I can't remember someone's name from yesterday, but I remember pretty much from five to 15, everything. Yeah. So it was huge for me. And actually when, as I said to you, when Jim got sacked, I think in 89, my dad kind of stopped supporting Luton as well. And he became a city fan. And I'm really, it's, it's, that's probably the happiest thing in all of this is that I, I chose city as a first year at uni to kind of make them my first team yeah and that's given my dad such pleasure pleasure that he wouldn't have had from Luton in the last 30 uh yeah. last 30 yeah. odd years so I, I'm chuffed a bit to that I mean he pisses me off because he's always moaning and you know <laughs> and say I said hold on a minute if it wasn't for me you old fuck you'd be still down getting with road supporting that shy so so don't moan too much but yeah no no I think it was huge it was huge and I remember it all but but the best fun was the 18 to 25 when you start boozing, like you're allowed to start boozing. We obviously all booze before, but those years. And then when I go to games now, I think we, took, we went to Villa uh, before the season, you know, I think it was in January or February, we went to Villa and you see the young lads and all right, some of them are dickheads are on drugs, but I look at them with a bit of jealousy because they're, even though football's sterile, even though we know what it's like now, but on that match day, they still have a great crack. And I think, they are your best years as a football fan. I, I couldn't agree that more. That just reminds me of Burton away in the Cup last year. Yeah. Last season. The the semi-final when we were 8-0 up. Uh, there were two young lads who thought it was a blue flare, uh, which went off right in my face. I was like, you know, Gumpy and me would be pissed off, I thought. But at the time, despite being injured as well, I could, only, could barely stand on one foot because I'd done my Achilles in. 
And I just thought, nah, they're, having, they're harmless. They're having a great time. And then in the second half, two middle-aged men and, or in the 50s and clearing off the head on drug, drinking drugs, trying to start fights with everyone. And I thought, no, the young one, the young kids there are the ones just, you know, <laughs> they're the future. They're the ones giving an atmosphere. Uh, the problem ones are your old school arseholes who, you know, want to fight with everyone because they're, they're paralytic for a midweek match or whatever. So yeah, it just, Leon just reminded me when he said that about, and there's not that link anymore, but you know, of going, of going by yourself as a teenager, it's, uh, I know you've said about, you've put a question about how was football better. Mm. In the old days, uh, that's one of them. There's not that link now because it's all sanitised and, you know, I don't know. A lot of people, are, I think, I wonder if they go with the parents and then just stop going when they have to buy their own ticket or something. Yeah. But it was a, it, you know, it's a coming of age thing to go to the football by yourself in the old days. I wonder if it is as much nowadays. I, well, I'd love to talk about that on another part sometime, kind of yeah. going to games on your own because that's a subject in itself, isn't it? It's, I've done it a couple of times in... Um, yeah, it's a very different experience, isn't it? Um, but yeah, we're, we're going to have to leave it there because we've kind of, well, I've certainly rambled on, apologise for that, but the nature of what we're talking about really lends itself to kind of a certain amount of nostalgic rambling, I guess. Um, so I hope you've enjoyed listening to it as much as we've enjoyed doing it because at this time and in this climate we live in, it's just good to kind of look back and remember a time when, you know, you go to a game you enjoy the game, you take in all the sights and sounds and you come home again. Uh, and we will have that again. Um, thank you very much for joining us today, Leon. I really appreciate it. No, Ross, I've got notes all over my hand that I've just written down, but we've <laughs> run out of time. But there was one thing, Les D, who, who was, you mentioned on Twitter, he, um, he's a huge supporter and he, he sends some lovely messages and does he a does, lot of retweeting and likes. So yeah. he's a, he seems to be yeah. a new, quite new to the pod. Um, but what a lovely guy. I don't know him personally, but he seems lovely. And uh, yeah, yeah. just wanted to say thanks to Les D. Absolutely. And, yeah. uh, and thank you, Howard, for joining us today, mate. Yeah, a pleasure as always. And um, yeah, just check out the rest of the kind of pods and blogs on the Night 320 platform. There's loads of good stuff out there. <laughs> I've got a very, very strange thing coming out later. What, what have you got coming out later? I'm not saying a blog. So check out everything but that. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just say after two months of, of not leaving the house, this is the blog I've I've produced. Right, okay. <laughs> I'll say no more. Okay, I'll look forward to that. Kind of look maybe look that. forward to that, yeah. So this is the most amateurish roundup we've ever done on this pod, so I'm going to wrap it up now by saying, take care, everyone, look after yourselves, and forever up the blues.